thank you for uh, coming this afternoon, obviously, uh, on such a topic that really doesn't cause any division or uh, issues amongst Christians. Um, yeah, I, my name is Todd Daly. I do teach theology and ethics at Urbana Theological Seminary. And if you've ever wondered what it's like to, say, take a seminary class, you're about to find out. Um, actually, it's, it's going to be a slightly different. It's more like seminary on steroids. Um, but uh, over the course of the next 50 minutes to an hour, I'm going to try to give uh, a high-level summary of a very uh, ex extremely divisive topic. Uh, several things we're going to talk about. I'll have a slide that outlines those. And then we'll have some time uh, for questions afterwards. Uh, I imagine there, there will be a few. Um, I'll do my best to, uh, uh, w within the context of grace, to say where I stand on some issues and, and where there's disagreement uh, amongst Christians. Uh, let me pray quickly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you need it. I need it. And then we'll get started. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here, and we pray for your movement in and amongst us, in our hearts, in our minds. Will you take these words that are said and sanctify them, and may they, may they get at the truth by your mercy and by your grace. Amen. Uh, some congregations today are claiming that the, uh, the gospel of liberation demands that we now support, uh, we support gay marriage. This is uh, a statement of koinonia back in 94 from um, the uh, Episcopal bishops uh, in the United States of America. Those who know themselves to be gay or lesbian persons and who forge relationships with partners of their choice that are faithful, monogamous, committed, life-giving, and holy are to be honored. This is far and away uh, the most challenging and difficult issue of this whole debate. Uh, the gospel of liberation, the gospel of freedom. There is uh, another version to this, however, uh, also under this notion of liberation as freedom, but freedom in, in a different way. Um, Don Williams from Fuller Seminary back in the late 70s said, for the church at this point to surrender to gay advocacy and gay theology, and thus to give up her biblical faith would bring not only disaster upon herself, it would bring more havoc to the world as well. So this issue, it doesn't merely threaten to, it is dividing the Christian community as well. Where does Windsor Road stand on this? Uh, we're, well, you're about to find out. We've, we've talked behind the scenes. Obviously, if I had some different view than Windsor Road, I wouldn't be up here, um, which, which makes perfect sense. Uh, um, having said that, I may express some things at the end in subtly different ways, but yet we are in, in broad agreement uh, on this issue. Uh, now we have the Supreme Court decision five to four in favor of supporting gay marriage which continues to, to change uh, the dynamic. Here, here's where we're going uh, in the next 50 minutes. Uh, there's the biblical question, the ethical question, the cultural engagement question. It's, it's extremely difficult to even limit, uh, limit our attention to say one hour for each bullet point. But, so we're gonna try to do three in an hour. Um, how do we interpret the, the biblical text, uh, assuming that this is a place where we should begin as Christians? What does the Bible have to say? That's the biblical question. 
that there is, however, the, the ethical question, which is not really the same as the biblical question. Uh, there are ethics in the Bible. No one disputes that. The, the Christian ethical question is, how do you use the Bible in ethics? And, and that that's, can be enormously complicated. Uh, we're going to try to I'm going to try to spell out in broad detail where some of the contours are in that debate. And then finally, how are we as Christians to respond to homosexuality and same-sex unions? This is, is a theological question. It's also a cultural engagement question. Here, there is widespread disagreement amongst Christians on how, how Christians should proceed here, even if there is agreement, uh, say, uh, on a stance on homosexuality. I'm going to try to summarize uh, 2,000 years of, of history in a couple of uh, slides here. So just bear with me, moving to, to the first point, defining homosexuality. Uh, it's likely as old as human history. It's been expressed in various ways in different cultures. However, recently there has been a noticeable shift in, towards this movement of a, of a, a homosexual identity. Uh, and it, it's, it's right in line with the Facebook opening up gender identity to some 50-odd options. This, this fits in the same, uh, same uh, stream of thought that has come upon us in the modern era. Uh, going back to Greek culture, it was not unusual for members of the same sex to engage in acts, particularly uh, in Plato's time, uh, uh, men with young boys was considered widely accepted in Greek culture. Even Plato uh, wrote about this and acknowledged it, uh, even though he was writing about ethics and was arguing for a rational appreciation of someone else. It's mildly disturbing. Uh, later in Plato's life, it's likely that he changed his mind. That's a scholarly dispute for another time. Aristotle, his pupil, largely disavowed homosexual practices homosexuality in general. He called it a pleasure shared with those who have bad natures. Uh, a pleasure of those who have bad natures. Nevertheless, in Greece and all the way up through Roman times, uh, it was not unusual for these activities to continue. The emperor Nero, uh, it was moderately, it was severely warped in, in several ways, uh, was involved himself in a couple of same-sex weddings, once as the bride, once as the groom. So this was not unusual in Greek and Roman culture. In the first century, uh, Iamblichus wrote about a relationship between two women, uh, a queen and another woman that ended up provoking a war. So th these things have been around forever. What I do want to focus on is uh, the shifting model of homosexuality and, and what I've called and others have called this eclipse of its moral dimension. And th this kind of gets at some of the cultural issues. Uh, the subheading here is the demise of the medical therapeutic model. Uh, what is that? Okay, well good, I'm on the same page here. Uh, in 1899, the American Psychological Association declared homosexuality a mental illness. Uh, Freud himself, uh, in, in the uh, 1900s, denied that this was a sickness, and he was intent on developing therapies primarily, primarily to help people cope with, this, uh, with their desires, uh, not necessarily to change them, though he was somewhat open to that, uh, but more about how to, how to deal with them. This is a well-known letter that he wrote to an American mother. It's available, Fordham University. Uh, website, uh, 
he answers this mother, I gather uh, from your letter that your son is homosexual. May I question you, why do you avoid it? It's assuredly no advantage, but it is nothing to be ashamed of. No vice, no degradation. It cannot be classified as an illness. We consider it to be a variation of the sexual function produced by a certain arrest of sexual development. Many highly respectable individuals of ancient and modern times have been homosexuals. Um, now, I, I, I can't attest to any of these people, but he you know, didn't have problems outing them in history. Plato, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, that may have been the case, I don't really know. Uh, it's a great injustice to persecute homosexuality as a crime, and uh, it's also uh, cruel. Uh, so, notice here that, there's, that this moral element is already evaporating. Uh, not too much later, uh, several psychiatrists uh, and with, with the publication of the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's known as DSM within the, the psychiatric community, they published uh, some, uh, some studies of how we determine uh, what types of disorders there are and how they're to be adjudged. They made these comments in, in 52, the, uh, the American Psychiatric Association declared this as a personality disorder, but by 1980, by the third uh, edition of DSM, they have, uh, they've dropped it. They've dropped it altogether. Um, and so here again, uh, the, uh, believe me, when they've done this and when this is carried on, it's, it's prompted huge debates among philosophers, how you decide what's an illness, who gets to determine that. There's a whole science behind that. Um, but to this day, there is still speculation that same-sex attraction can be traced to arrested development. That's uh, a, Freudian, a Freudian concept, primarily a deficient parental relationship. Um, the thought goes that men and women enter into relationships with the other sex to make up for a deep, uh, a deep need uh, to connect that wasn't established with a particular parent. Again, a lot of people don't like uh, that explanation now. It still circulates. Others see homosexuality as a learned behavior or preference. Uh, childhood or adolescent sexual experiences can shape one's orientation. Still others suggest that it's society's fault. It's society's fault for putting forward a male version of masculinity that has contributed to the rise of, of homosexuality. Um, again, that's a hotly disputed concept. I, I certainly um, would have some issues with that, but we can take that up later. Um, here's some of the, 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 the take-home points, or at least two big points here, and, and these are in your notes as well. I thought to err on the side of giving you more rather than less, so that if you miss something that I say, or you know, this keeps you from writing, scribbling furiously for the next 40 minutes. Um, but I think this is, this is quite common now for many psychologists and psychiatrists. Such explanations, in other words, the ones that I just kind of threw out there, um, place homosexual behavior beyond the realm of morality and ethics. Notice that we're not seeing descriptions that, uh, that would say right or wrong, or moral or immoral. That, that is kind of out of bounds in the medical community. Non-Christian therapists also focus primarily not on helping someone perhaps come to grips with their orientation or change it, but rather to learn to live with it and accept themselves for who they are. Again, notice that, that, the, that the moral dimension is slowly slipping away. Uh, 
in addition to this, we also have research into the biology of, of homosexuality. Since the 1950s, researchers have been looking for, for uh, causes in terms of uh, brain function, brain chemistry, the genetic makeup of the brain. Some, some are looking at pre- and postnatal hormonal influences on the brain. This notion of a gay gene has been out there for about 15 or 20 years, the XQ28, which is a region on the X chromosome. Um, more, more, recently, um, more recently, Michael Bailey, uh, this, is, this is 2014, this quote, a study at Northwestern University, sexual orientation has nothing to do with choice. Our findings suggest that there may be genes at play, and we have found evidence, or we found evidence for two sets that affect whether a man is gay or straight. This comes from a study of 409 gay men over the last several years. Th that's quite a bold statement, and uh, I dare I say, uh, even as a non-scientist, quite reckless to say something uh, that aggressively. There is still a fundamental question that science has not answered, and that is uh, the degree to which genes affect behavior and the way behavior influences the way genes are expressed. It is, it is a, it is a, it's both, it's cyclical. And so this, uh, this is just simplistic and an overstatement, but um, it gets published and, and gets a lot of attention. The, perhaps the most subtle thing I'm gonna say about the cultural dynamics here comes from point three, this uh, social constructivist critique of homosexuality and the birth of sexual orientation. What, what in the world is that? Social constructionists are philosophers who study the power of language to describe reality. Um, for them, all categories of understanding and even moral judgment are viewed primarily as a products of a culture. And so there is, in a real sense, a battle going on, a struggle for power over who gets to define what things mean, in, including what homosexuality means. I should have a slide for this. Uh, and and we, we can challenge these. As a theologian, I, I would challenge these, but I, I also appreciate that there's, there is something going on here that they've tapped into. Social constructionists argue that there is no value-free, consistent, universal identifier or essence of the homosexual condition. I think on, on, one, uh, on one perspective, they, they may be right. However, I, I do want to point out their, their, their presuppositions, their, their starting point, uh, because it's rooted in philosophy, they would reject any kind of transcendent vision of what is or is not the case. In other words, social constructionists by definition have no interest in appealing to say the Bible or a religious document or revelation that might have something to say about the way the world works. They're, they're interested primarily in how even religious folks use language to try to make, uh, to make a power play in culture by defining things in a particular way. Um, a, a, another point, they, the social constructionists point out that any medical classification of homosexuality is ultimately related to the prevailing social mores or values of a culture. I think that is a perfectly valid observation. That's kind of a deep statement, but uh, going back to this uh, diagnostic statistical manual for behaviors uh, among psychiatrists, the, the fundamental question is, well, who gets to say what's a disease and, and why? Well, as an association of psychiatrists, they're empowered to do that on some level. 
but underlying that is a, is a concept that we have to come to grips with, and that's the question of, well, who gets, decide, who gets to decide what health means? Or who gets to decide what normal means, or what fully functioning means? Uh, we all have some idea. What social constructionists point out is that your idea might be different than uh, someone else's idea, and everybody is, is vying for the power to have their say. Um, and then finally, in other words, uh, this is just a restatement, concepts like health, well-being, homosexual are local to various cultures. There is some truth to that, uh, but we haven't yet talked about what the Bible has to say, and we'll get there uh, in just a couple of minutes. Um, so social constructionists see these diagnostic or categories as moral categories, even as relative to a, to a culture, to either maintain conformity or to prevent and control nonconformist power. Um, this is, by the way, this is where I think this dominant motif of sexual orientation is coming from. And it's not entirely invalid, um, but sexual orientation as it's thrown around in our culture also carries with it this idea that there is no hope or no reason for anyone to ever change their orientation. And we, we might want to challenge that as Christians. Sexual orientation is favored over another term called sexual preference. Why is that? Well, sexual preference introduces the idea of volition or will or the ability to have some impact or, or input on who I decide to be attracted to. Um, so as we noted, or I briefly noted before, uh, historically we've had two uh, broad uh, categories, of uh, Facebook categories, if you will, heterosexual male and heterosexual female. But now in the culture wars, we are faced with this third type. Uh, and this, maybe, I hope this quote is enlightening. It's a slight overstatement, but I think, I think this is, uh, we're in deep waters here, so just bear with me. Um, Maggie Gallagher said this, and I think she's right, 200 years ago, homosexuality didn't exist. What? Uh, yes, there was sodomy and fornication and adultery and other sexual sins, but none of these forbidden acts fundamentally altered the sexual landscape. A man who committed sodomy may have lost his soul, but he did not lose his gender. He did not become a homosexual, a third sex. That was the invention of 19th century imagination. We don't need to relive that history, but this is, this is where I, I read the social constructionists, even though I don't agree with their presuppositions, but they make insights like this that I think are largely correct. Um, thus, in the 1970s, we find George uh, Weinberg, a psychologist, rejecting this heterosexual ideal that's propagated in our society. According to Weinberg, the real problem is society's intolerance of homosexuals. Uh, another guy by the name of Don Clark went further and by basically asserting that we're all born gay. We're all born gay, but then, you know, society socializes us out of it, or at least most of us. I mean, that's quite a radical thing to say. Um, I, I completely disagree with that, by the way. I just wanted you to know that that's out there. Um, <laughs> What about a contemporary bioethical definition? The Encyclopedia of Bioethics, this is from their third edition, they've just now come out with a fourth, defines homosexuals as a group unique only in their orientation. They are erotically attracted to members of the same sex. So notice homosexuality is, is being narrowly defined in terms of one's feelings. And I, I, I will take issue with that a little bit later. Uh, here's, here's the last thing I'll say about you know, social constructionism. 
Um, this is from the 1995 uh, edition and earlier. But note, I've highlighted the words here, to, again, to, to get at this idea that we're constructing an identity in our culture. It's important to recognize uh, that terms such as homosexual, bisexual, heterosexual are constructed within a socio-political and cultural climate. That sounds so academic, how could it not be true? Um, <laughs> now, I, I think that there is, there's some truth to this, right? I w will say more theological things that are, that are deeper than this, but this, there's something to this. As the climate changes, our understanding of this meaning as such, of such labels changes too. This point is important for clinicians to keep in mind when assessing an individual's sexual orientation and in choosing the terms to, to describe it. Notice, again, we're just, we're, we're trying to make sense of our identities without feeling guilty about trying to change it. What I want to point out here is that uh, homosexuality is increasingly identified with feelings subjectively and that orientation uh, or, or orientation and not necessarily with one's behavior. Uh, what about causes? Uh, here, you know, there's a wealth of, of uh, studies out there, and there's, there's no agreement whatsoever. Uh, letter C here. Um, they're, they're numerous and complex. Um, is there a biological genetic component? Um, I'm sure there is, but we are more than our genes. Uh, is there a social component? Nurture? Yes, I think there can be. Um, the reality is, is that some people, for various reasons, can actually move in and out of this lifestyle without feeling like they're particularly uh, enslaved to one version of their sexuality or another. Um, there are a lot of folks, however, who feel that they've been born this way and from their earliest memories, they've always been attracted to members of the same sex. And they've grown up in what would be considered healthy, uh, nourishing families who cultivate a sense of well-being and and love their kids and show physical affection. So these things are enormously uh, complicated. Um, there's a sub-question about can, can, can you change? Uh, I, would, I would say, well, we should never ever <laughs> underestimate the power of the gospel for that to happen. I do recognize there are Christian organizations that are devoted to this. I say amen. Um, I, I think this is a fight worth fighting. I also uh, have friends who have spent years in this kind of therapy, and for all practical purposes, it hasn't, it, it, it's failed. So it, 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 it's, it's sad and depressing, but uh, I, I just, I think we need to, to be aware that those things are out there. Um, theologically, I can't resist saying something theologically here now. Um, we, we have to connect this to the fall. Created by God, absolutely, but we're also fallen creatures. I'll say more about that a little bit later. Why I've said this, um, for very particular reasons, um, is, is this. Um, given our very liberal ethic of freedom and a culture that focuses almost exclusively on individual rights, coupled with this rise of a social construction of homosexuality as this kind of identity that never changes, I think it's easy to see why any public moral challenge to one's sexual orientation especially in an era that is, you know, biblically illiterate, is usually received as hate speech or homophobic or an attack on one's dignity and identity. No matter how loving anyone makes that claim publicly, it's almost, it's almost impossible for, um, for someone who is in this lifestyle to hear that as anything but a, a bigoted and divisive and hateful statement. 
for an increasing percentage of our population to criticize someone's sexuality is increasingly considered as criticizing someone for the color of their skin. And that is, <laughs> that is the thorny issue of public engagement. That's why I'm putting it off to the end, because uh, it is, um, it's, uh, it, it, it's extremely challenging. Uh, but in this context, uh, we've got to say something about the, the Bible. Uh, here, and this is going to sound like a strange statement, but be because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a theologian and an ethicist, um, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I am, I am somewhat out of my area here. But that doesn't absolve me from like, making sense of the Bible. The Bible matters. I see a few of our students here had me for theology, so you would know that we, we relate the two together. Uh, but I know there are others uh, at the seminary who could speak more richly and deeply uh, on these texts. So this, is, this, is my, uh, uh, this will be my kind of hack job through, through the Old and New Testament. But... Um, you know, I've, I've consulted the experts, and so I, I'm not completely on my own here. Um, so what about, what, about the, uh, what about the Bible? There are not that many texts, but, but thankfully we have time to go through all of them here, I, I'm hoping. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah is often, uh, well, it's, it's the first one we encounter. Uh, here's, here's the whole text. I, I'm not going to read it. Um, but there, there are some angelic visitors that come to the city, and uh, the men come out and call to Lot and say, look, where are these men that came? Bring them out so that we might know them. The Hebrew there is yada, very generic term for knowing, but it also carries this sense of a euphemism for, for sexual intercourse. Um, up until the 50s, it was assumed that this passage is really, about, they're, they're really condemning this kind of behavior. But uh, some scholars, biblical scholars, uh, decided it's, it's good to revisit these texts, and it was, uh, some, it, some interpretations were actually put forward that suggested that these men of the city were just wanting to, you know, meet these people because you violated hospitality norms, and let's have some coffee and just, and just chat. Um, th that, pro that interpretation is deeply problematic uh, because uh, the, the text says that, you know, Lot clearly and alarmingly offered his daughter's who had not known a man instead. So it's clear that um, this was about sex. Um, okay, so uh, a, couple, a couple more points here. If I get the right slide. Let me go back one. Okay, yes. Um, Critics of this passage, too, will say, well, look, um, there, there's no mention of homosexuality in this passage. In fact, if you look at Ezekiel, what is Sodom being condemned for? Uh, well, granted, homosexuality isn't expressed clearly, but other things are, uh, ignoring the, the poor and the needy. Uh, they were haughty. However, we do have this generic phrase, abominable things, to'eva is the Hebrew um, we'll come back to that word. That's fairly significant. So there is an, an admission that something uh, deeply, deeply disturbing going on here. Others, other attempts to say take the edge off this passage would say, well, what's really going on here is not homosexuality as such, but you have angelic visitors um, interacting sexually with humans. I mean, that's what's really going on here. 
Uh, and there is, you know, granted that there, there's some evidence of this. Jude 6 and 7 um, ties this back to a, a very obscure passage in Genesis we don't have time to talk about. Genesis 6, 1 to 4, sons of God, the, the daughter, daughters of men, the Nephilim, giants in the land. That passage seems to allude to, uh, to this uh, sexual union of angelic beings and, and, and human beings. And so that's what's really going on here. And then finally, the, 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 last, uh, the, the last objection, and the, you won't find it in the text, but the implication is um, what is really being criticized here is homosexual rape. So if, if that's what's really going on in this text, now you won't find that word in the text anywhere, but if that's what's going on, then this, this passage has nothing to say to a committed covenantal relationship between two people of the same sex. That, that's kind of the argumentation. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. I'm not going to talk about Judges 19. It's a, it's, a similar, it's a similar situation there. I think we are on more solid footing with the holiness code in, in Leviticus. Uh, here, here are the two passages that speak in quite generic terms. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is, here's that word again, an abomination. Um, it, we'll unpack that in a couple seconds. Uh, same thing uh, a couple chapters later. If a man lies with the male, so the woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Toeva, they shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Um, here, here we don't have any connotations of rape. This might seem to speak more clearly to this issue of same-sex relationships. Uh, some, however, will argue that these prescriptions, because they're part of the holiness code, only apply to Israel and their historic context. They will point out today that, hey, we ignore a lot of the things that are in the holiness code. Uh, here's, here's a couple of uh, examples. Um, well, we now wear clothes of mixed fabric, and that was, that was prohibited for, for the nation of Israel. And same thing about cleanliness laws with respect to, uh, to menstruation. We, we may violate some of those occasionally. So uh, we really don't need, to, we don't need to be concerned with this passage. This is Old Testament it's, uh, it's stuff for Israel. We're, we're in a new era now. Uh, first, three, three things we can say here. I think it fails to appreciate why these laws were given in the first place. Uh, biblical scholars will say these laws in part were connected to God's sense of right and wrong, but also it was very important for Israel to preserve their cultural identity when they were surrounded by nations and cultures that were directly hostile to, uh, to what Israel was trying to accomplish as, as a nation. Here's a, a good summary. I'm, I'm relying on Peter Coleman here. Uh, Old Testament morality concerning sexual relationships is in basic principle committed to the defense of family and married life. And everything outside it is seen as a threat and an outrage and abomination not to be permitted in Israel. The second point that I think is really difficult to get around is that the prohibition for this was death. Um, that's, uh, you know, the penalty often reflected the seriousness of the crime, and, and death was as serious as it got. I mean, there were other forms of ritual uncleanliness, like you know, childbirth, emission of semen, menstruation, that could be taken care of through sacrifice and basic purification, but not for homosexuality. It was designated at this word abomination. Uh, and it's been defined as uh, 
that which is contrary to a being's true identity. And I think just what we heard this morning from Randy and this, this notion of identity in Christ, I think that is a big deal. You, you might say, well, okay, uh, should we kill people today? Um, well, no, of course not. But Paul seemed to follow up with this in a, in a similar way by saying, look, expel the immoral brother. Um, kick him out of the fellowship. Um, this, you know, that, that's, that is a death of sorts. So I'm not sure how easy it is to get around um, that issue. And then finally, we have to recognize that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament seems to speak in the same vein as Leviticus, broadening it even further and tying it not back to God's specific laws, but rather to nature and creation itself. And I think that, that is, uh, that's very telling. So we just, we just like flew through the Old Testament. Now we're on to the New Testament. Uh, bear with me. Um, oh, I had a slide for that. Uh, there you go. Um, good. And um, if, um, uh, if I, we can, I can make these slides readily available. So I can either uh, give them to someone at, at Windsor here and, uh, or whatever. But, or if, if you want a copy, I'll be happy to send these to you. So... Um, by, by all means. Uh, in, in, in the New Testament, I'm going to start here with Corinthians and Timothy. Um, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Here's a long list of bad things. Um, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, etc. Paul to Timothy um, kind of re, uh, re-describes these. I, I, I can't miss, I, sorry, I just had to back up quickly. I can't miss this. Notice that last sentence of 1 Corinthians 6, 9. I mean, that's if, if there's any theological warrant for an identity in Christ, an identity that uh, moves away from sexuality, or that underscores that you know, people on some level can change or engage in successful lifelong warfare, um, I would think that last sentence uh, has a lot to say. This is what some of you used to be. But this is, this is not what our culture wants, wants to hear. Uh, this, is, this is lifted right from my ethics uh, notes, or maybe not. <laughs> oh, I, I just have to be more patient. I, technology just, it, it, it inculcates this desire for we need it now. Um, but we do, we're on a short uh, time schedule. Uh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to uh, you know, bore you with, with too much of the language. What I am doing is anticipating or interacting with the objections to this again. What typically happens is that some scholars will say uh, this, this Greek word, uh, this uh, look at the bottom, arsenikoitai, which is almost a made-up term by Paul, but it, uh, it, it, not quite. But what scholars will say is that, well, that's, um, that is a technical term that only speaks to homosexual prostitution. And notice that that word is used in, well, it's used in both of those references. If that's what's going on, then that really has nothing to do with committed same-sex relationships. I think it, it's a little bit more complicated, uh, complicated than that. Here, here we go. Let's see what happens. Um, th- this is where, uh, again, we're, we're uh, doing some, some more biblical work. Uh, there's a thing called the Septuagint, right, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So it's Hebrew translated into Greek. When you want to figure out what a word means or how it's used, often you'll say, okay, let's go look at the Septuagint to see how it was used 
earlier in history, between 3 and 200 BC, scholars will fight about, or, or, you know, about some of those details. But notice this is a Leviticus passage that we just talked about. Um, and this is in the Greek. I have included the Greek there, if man lies with the male as with a woman. Notice the language, meta, arsenos, quaten, gynecos. It's literally with a man as lying with the woman. If you take arsenos and koiton and you stick them together, that's it's probably where uh, um, th th there's, a, there's a good good reason for why Paul maybe used that term. I, all I want to make the point here is that the language is strikingly similar in an Old Testament passage. This is as deep as we go in, in language. Um, it's as deep as I can go anyway, and um, doing anything in Greek and Hebrew on a Sunday afternoon is always a risky enterprise. I, I, I get that. Um, so yeah, so, so, so there you have it. Uh, what about, the, the, the big one I think undoubtedly is Romans, Romans 1, 26 and, and 27. Um, Paul is talking about the wrath of God that is being revealed to all humankind or mankind. For this reason, um, God gave them up to, de to uh, degrading passions. Now what had happened before this passage is that uh, Paul had said that uh, men and women exchanged the glory of the image of God for humanity and that glory and that that reference to image of God I think harkens directly back to one Genesis, Genesis 1 26 and 27 the creation narratives I'll say more about that in, in a second but here here we know Paul is singling out both um, homosexuality and and lesbian relationships um, however um, scholars suggest that uh, what Paul is really doing here is not going after um, he's, he's not actually addressing people who feel like they've been born this way or they're, they're gay by nature. Paul wasn't addressing that. And if he's not addressing that, then the passage, once again, has really nothing to say. So the argument goes something like this. If you were born gay, you're actually sinning or you're perverting your nature to pursue a heterosexual relationship. If you're born heterosexual, you're committing a perversion to pursue a gay relationship. Um, so if, 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 that is, if that's what's going on, then what Paul is talking about here, it, it, just, it just doesn't apply. In other words, Paul is not addressing people who feel like they've been this way all their life. He's addressing those who, for whatever reason, reason uh, just want to uh, you know, uh, go to the other side, uh, so to speak, a as a perversion. Um, the, the, the crux of the issue is, well, how, how do you define nature what is natural and and that is um th that's enormously complex i've uh i'm just asking a few bullet point questions and i'm i'm summarizing it um if if you look at it i've, I've read a book uh called uh, altering nature and in the first chapter um very short chapter that the author there a very good author just says um, we need to come to grips with what nature means. And, and in this short chapter, he proceeds to give 17 different usages of nature that, that are all intelligible and all make sense. So it, it's, a very, it's a very complex question. Um, can natural mean that what just occurs in nature? Well, yes, of course it can. I mean, that's how scientists typically use the word nature, something that's just there, it's a given. Um, is it just an orientation that one is born with? In other words, something that occurs apart from one's volition? I think theologically it's best to interpret nature the way Paul's using it as that 
which was intended by God. Why? Because he hearkens back to the creation narratives in Genesis 1. Uh, that which is intended by God, including the purpose, the Greek word there is telos. I don't know why I included that, but there it is. For which God has created humankind. Um, considering these passages as a whole, and we'll come back to a couple more objections, I think it's clear, uh, it seems clear to me that homosexual activity is contrary to God's purposes for humanity and therefore a sin. But that's, that's not the full story. Um, what is surprising, and here I'm going to uh, uh, back up again and consider what some Christian ethicists are saying who defend same-sex relationships, is, is this interesting dynamic, and it, it relates to the difference between the biblical question and the, the ethical question. The, a lot of biblical scholars, or a lot of ethicists, rather, actually agree with, uh, largely with some of the things that I've outlined here. In other words, they'll say, you know what, um, seems like the Bible is largely of one voice here, that that is not a good thing. But the next question is, what in the world does the Bible have to say to us today? or the church. And so you can concede something as in the Bible, but yet not necessarily take it on board as an ethical perspective. Um, this is the quagmire of Christian ethics. This is, this is usually uh, the world that I hang out in, and maybe that kind of explains some of my neuroses and issues. Um, because what happens here is that you find Christians saying, uh, Christian ethicists saying, oh yeah, the Bible pretty much condemns homosexual behavior. But what's the Bible? H how do we read it? Uh, either we need an interpretive lens or we need, a, we need a, an approach. Um, so, so the reality is you know, we could stand here and quote 2 Timothy 3.16 until we're blue in the face, but we haven't yet, you know, the Bible is, is the word of God. It's inspired. It's useful for correction, reproof, training, instruction, righteousness, etc., etc. But you haven't yet addressed the question as to how the Bible functions for the community of faith. Uh, and so some just say, you know, I'm just going to pass over this quickly. The Bible's just wrong. That's, here's Walter Wink. Um, you know, you can find his books at Barnes & Noble in the religious section in great abundance. Uh, here, here's a, a, a clear example. The Bible clearly considers homosexuality a sin. I freely grant that. The issue is precisely whether that biblical judgment is correct. Are we not free to reevaluate the whole issue in light of all available data and decide under God for ourselves? Uh, well, yes and no, but not, not when we just completely dismiss the text. I mean, what he's subtly doing here is saying, well, we're the primary adjudicators of what's right and wrong. So if the Bible meets up to our standards, then we'll use it. If it doesn't, it's a piece of ancient history. You know, we can appreciate, we'll read it at Christmas and do whatever, but we don't want it, we don't want it to impact our lives. Um, thank you, Walter Wink. Uh, slide 27, uh, Gary Comstock, same thing. The passages will be brought up and used against us again and again until Christians demand their removal from the biblical canon uh, or at the very least formally discredit their authority to prescribe behavior. So he's just coming out. These are, you know, these, the gloves are off. We need to reconsider the Bible. Before we start throwing stones at him, you know, Martin Luther said the same thing in the book of James. He was hardly happy about that, but that's, uh, that's a discussion for another day. Uh, it, a, a different tack, and we've kind of alluded to it, is this letter B, the Bible's not really addressing homosexuality as a lifelong orientation. Um, this view is, is that, you know, the Bible has a specific set of practices in mind, but it really is silent on the issue of, well, I, hey, I was just born that way. 
Um, and, and biblical scholars, some will say Paul had no notion of a sexual orientation from birth. Please note that's an argument from just silence. Um, we, we, just, we just don't know what Paul knew, but it seems to me the evidence actually would suggest otherwise. Here's a little, uh, a, a little snippet of uh, data that matters for us. Ptolemy in the, in the first century uh, speculated that homosexual predilections, predilections were influenced by astrology. In other words, there was in this culture a notion that you could be born this way. Paul may have very well been aware of that. Keep in mind, Paul wasn't just a Pharisee. He, was, uh, he, he knew his philosophy, right? When in Acts 17, he quoted some of the pagan poets back to the philosophers. Uh, Phaedrus speculated that uh, Prometheus uh, mistakenly affixed male sexual parts to some women and vice versa after a drinking party with Bacchus. Again, it's, it's, it's pure speculation, but notice the notion is, okay, they were, they were born that way. Um, perhaps most striking, Plato's Symposium. Uh, in his work, uh, Symposium, Aristophanes appeals to a common Greek creation story uh, where, uh, where actually Zeus had originally created uh, human beings as a giant orb with two heads, four arms, and four legs. But they were, running, they were just running roughshod over the earth, and he got ticked off. And so he decided that... Uh, that if I cut them in half, if I cut them in half, I can, I can you know, make them behave. But the interesting thing is, and it's, I mean, you can go online and, and read symposium. It's like a page and a half. Um, the, the interesting thing in here is, is that uh, Aristophanes said that, yeah, of course, there were, sometimes it was male-female. Other times, they were joined as male-male or female-female. In other words, they were born that way. And so the whole theory of love is, is that we're, we're trying to get back and become one with who we were united with you know, when we were first created. Um, just uh, here you go. There's, uh, I mean, th this is right. This is an ancient uh, artistic depiction of this. So this, this, was, this was known in the ancient world. Chances are it was known by Paul. All of these, these last two slides, they're all they're trying to make the point here is that, okay, this notion of gay from birth, homosexual from birth, it, it was around. It was around. Paul, uh, to say that Paul wasn't addressing that is an argument from silence, and the, 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 the background material seems to speak uh, otherwise. Even John Boswell, I don't have a slide for him, but he's an outspoken proponent of same-sex marriage and writes as a Christian ethicist. Even he said, and I'm quoting, the idea that homosexuality represented a congenital physical characteristic, that is a, a characteristic from birth, was widespread in the Hellenistic world. But then he goes right on immediately to say that Paul probably didn't take that into account. So ultimately, it's an argument from silence. Um, that's a way that, uh, this is one way that uh, scholars try to dismiss the text. They could say, well, whatever Paul meant, it doesn't apply to us. The other big way is to say, well, we need to read the Bible through a theological lens. I, we're, we're getting close to the end. Bear with me. I know this is... This is heady stuff. This view says that we, we do have to read the Bible through a lens. Uh, we need a, a motif, uh, some type of uh, paradigm. And so what are the paradigms that are offered? Very quickly, uh, covenant, love, liberation. We need to read the Bible through the lens of covenant. Michael Keeling draws on this theme 
and says basically, you know, that the answer to the question, how should we relate to one another, is covenantally. But notice when you make covenant, that the paradigm, it's, it's very open to a lot of definitions, including whether or not you're covenanting with someone of the same sex. But it's a biblical theme. Um, yes, it is a biblical theme, but how it's used here is usually filled out with some abstract philosophy. Same thing with love. Christian ethicists will say, uh, will quote Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love. Okay, amen. Um, but then they interpret love usually in a very narrowly, and the question is, well, is that how the Bible would define love? And then finally, liberation. If you, you remember back to the first quote, and I, if, if you were like me, you wouldn't remember back to the first quote, um, this language of liberation was used to defend same-sex relationships. Um, isn't the Bible a story of liberation? So shouldn't that be a, a lens through which we read the Bible? Um, and is, isn't, you know, aren't, aren't homosexuals being oppressed? And, and don't they deserve freedom? That, that's kind of the question. Uh, those are the assertions. So Christian ethicists who read the Bible through that lens will once again say, yeah, the Bible pretty much says, you know, this is not a good thing, yet... We need, you know, we need to make the Bible relevant for our day and age. And so that's, that's where the rub is. Um, there is, I have on my shelf a, a, a dictionary. It's called the Dictionary of Scripture and Ethics. And it's like 800 pages. It came out a few years ago. And in the opening article, uh, the author writes that there's basically no agreement about how Scripture should be used in ethics. And then there's 800 pages of ideas that follow. So it is, it's an enormously complicated, uh, it's enormously complicated thing. And if you get it wrong, you can actually inflict damage on people. And I've seen it happen. I've seen people read the Sermon on, on the Mount as a brand new set of commands that are much, much harder than the Old Testament. And they put people in prison. Um, but that's, that's for a different story. And I'm not angry about that. Actually, I am. But... Um, <laughs> So, so these, these concepts, I think I have a slide uh, uh, here. Um, love is, is normally uh, something that's identified as, uh, I should say, a long-term commitment. That sounds like, you know, social contract theory. Or it, again, it doesn't, um, uh, you know, a long-term commitment that we enter into an agreement with. Uh, again, it's a very thin definition of love. I, I couldn't resist this quote from Joe Dallas. Um, the love, oh, now it's gone. Oh, there it is. Yeah, that was a summary slide that I missed. Um, the love between two homosexuals cannot make homosexuality normal or legitimate any more than the love of two people committing adultery justifies the breaking of uh, marital vows. Uh, here I'm going to like come back up to the surface and give a lot of uh, high-level summary points. I need to say a couple things about marriage and then culture, and, and we'll be done here. Um, I'm hoping in five minutes. Um, most agree. Who's most? I'm, I'm saying most Christian ethicists, okay? And, and that's, there are some that would still take issue with this. Uh, agree that the ethics in the Bible, notice ethics in the Bible condemns same-sex relationship. There's widespread disagreement concerning how the Bible should function in Christian ethics. Um, what about this term natural? I think it's best to define natural and unnatural theologically by situating this in, in terms of the whole grand narrative that is the, 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 the story that Scripture tells, the true story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation, new heaven, and new earth. If we define natural theologically, um, I, I do think we need to go 
back to natural as intended by God, which takes us back to Adam and Eve. Low battery, dismiss, okay. Um, well, we might be done sooner. Um, the Bible, uh, I need, there's some more points and a, a couple things I really need to say. The Bible only condones sexual expression within the context of a marriage, uh, which is understood as one man, one woman. Uh, what are these passages? This is Jesus basically um, hearkening back to Adam and Eve. Therefore, any relationship outside of uh, the context of marriage uh, whether that's gay or straight, uh, is a violation of God's intention for human creation as revealed in uh, the creation of Adam and Eve. Come on, bear with me. We're almost there. What, what about gay marriage? Um, just a, a high-level summary. Um, clearly, uh, in order to talk about gay marriage, I need to say something about uh, what the Bible says about marriage. This is a more theological account of marriage. Uh, notice this, that what Paul does, marriage is uh, most significant as a symbol of Christ's love for the church. I think uh, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5. If, if, you know, yeah, having kids is important and, you know, being redeeming agents and culture and all of that, it's great, good stuff. But primarily, Paul says, marriage is good because it, uh, between a man and a woman, because it, it, it speaks, it's a, it's a symbol, it's a ritualistic symbol that speaks of Christ's love for the church. Therefore, the sexual union of husband and wife, man and woman, symbolically and ritually attests to Christ's union with the church, to becoming one. This includes, obviously, an openness for having children. Once again, marriage between one man and woman seems to be the only context for sexual expression. I, I need to change celibacy. celibacy. I'm looking for chastity there is prescribed in other instances. Chastity is subtly different. It means I'm going to attempt to remain pure, um, but there, you know, God may have a mate for me at some point in my life. You know, someone, someone of the opposite sex. Celibacy is more taking an active vow. And I, I'm, that's, so I want that clearly understood. In the notes, I think I've got celibacy. I would rather that say chastity. Uh, the Bible knows nothing of a right to sexual expression or fulfillment, if such a thing were possible, even in a fulfilling, even in a fallen world, even, even in the best of marriages. Uh, I don't think, I think we have to acknowledge that we're all kind of broken sexually on some level. But I, I, I do get, uh, I get irritated when I find Christians in the public square fighting on, uh, on the world's terms. And by that, I mean um, readily embracing and taking on this rights language as if we have a right to happiness or sexual fulfillment. Um, I mean, that's just complete and utter nonsense from a Christian perspective. Ask Paul if he ever would have thought of, you know, I have a right to a, you know, a, a normal life. Um, Anyway, I, that's another one of my uh, pet peeves. Sorry if uh, I, I realize I might be angering some folks there. Um, uh, Paul also does something in 1 Corinthians 7. He, he says, okay, marriage is the most important because it, it speaks to the relationship between Christ and the church. But then he also says, on the other hand, you know, if you're a Christian, it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, in other words, if you can remain single and serve me, then, then go and do it. Um, that's actually probably better. Uh, Stan Grant says the most significant relationship in the Gospels, in, in the Bible, is, is full-on becoming a disciple of Christ. That is the relationship that trumps all others. Marriage, singleness, happiness, sadness, 
uh, whatever. And marriage will not be necessary in the next life. Um, Jesus himself subsumed becoming a disciple uh, are, are held becoming a disciple as more important than familial relationships. Who are my mother and my brothers? The ones who, who do the will of my father. Let the dead bury the dead. Harsh stuff. Um, but what he's doing is saying discipleship is first and foremost. Um, and here, here, this is going to be the, the, the deepest slide of the whole uh, th- this, is a, this is a theological statement. This is not a statement for the public square. I don't think anyone outside of here would even understand this. Um, and this is deep. And it, is, it, is it kind of flirting with Roman Catholic theology a little bit? Marriage is a sacrament? I think it does. But I think Stan Grentz is right. Um, this is why he ultimately says a physical union between two members of the same sex, even in a covenant, fails. A physical ask, act must have the capacity to symbolize the reality it ritualizes and thereby serve as an authentic ritual. Viewed from this perspective, same-sex intercourse falls short. It is deficient as a vehicle for conveying the meaning the sex act is intended to symbolize because it cannot ritually enact the reality it symbolizes. It fails to make that reality, that is the reality of oneness, present. Same-sex intercourse loses the symbolic dimension of the two becoming one present in the male-female sex. That needs a whole lot more fleshing out. We have no time for that. It's a very deep statement. Um, it's a very theological argument, too, but I think, uh, I think he's right. So let me just uh, uh, give some general thoughts on some general conclusions, because I think there's some things that need to be said. Uh, and, and here's where I, this is enormously important. Theologically speaking, an, an erotic disposition toward members of one's own sex can be traced back ultimately to the fall. Um, are we created in God's image? Absolutely. Are we also fallen? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so the critical issue is not, man, I have these same-sex desires. Well, that's important. But the critical issue is how we respond to those. Um, in other words, point B, or the, the, this bullet, bullet point in the middle, we can apply language like sin. Now, in its broadest sense, if we're all fallen, we're all sinners, yes. But specific acts that, you know, that operate in the, in the realm of homosexuality can be labeled specifically as sins. How we respond is critical. And I've mentioned this before, sexual fulfillment for Christians, whether gay or straight, is not a right. Um, and so, so here, here's what I'm saying. Um, we ought not to make people who struggle with this feel guilty for struggling with that. Okay? We could say, how, whatever the causes are, and they're enormously complex, theologically we can say, this is a part of being a, a fallen creature. Um, can, can we, as a church, uh, show the grace and the mercy and forgiveness to struggle uh, to, to struggle with people who are intent on, on battling those desires or not giving in to them or even seeking help to even change them um, when, when that can happen. Um, a, a couple uh, other minor points. I think we need to resist referring to those who struggle with their sexuality as homosexual. Uh, w- why do I take issue with that? 
uh, again, it, it privileges sex too much. And yeah, that's easy to say as a heterosexual married male. I, I get that. Um, but at the same time, um, it goes back to what Randy said this morning about identity, right? I mean, if, if, if we identify as gay or straight, what, what have we just subtly done? We, we, we've said that sex is not just important, but it's a core part of my identity. Well, of course, it's some part of our identity. But I'd rather, I'd rather refer to people as, you know, um, uh, Christians or Christ followers who struggle with same-sex desires or, or something along those lines. First and foremost, I belong to Christ. Um, and, and this follows, you know, similar language and culture. When, you know, it's, we don't really call people handicapped anymore, right? No, they're, they're persons with disabilities, right? Because they are people. Their limitations is not the sum of their identity. And that's the same thought that I want to give here. Um, and then this last one, just a total cop-out. I'm guilty. How churches respond to the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage depends in large part on how the church understands her mission, which includes the degree to which Christians are to shape culture. Um, I, I admittedly, I have, uh, this is the last thing I'll say, then you can push me on that or ask questions if we have any time left. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, obviously I'm not, I'm, I'm not enthused by the Supreme Court decision, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure that engaging in a public battle is the way to go. I think I think being salt and light and loving people where they are and letting the gospel transform people's lives is more important. But that means, you know, along the lines of Jesus, that means um, being friends with people who are in this lifestyle and, and uh, loving them as Christians. And if the opportunity comes up as lovingly as possible to say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm coming at this from a different perspective. But if, if we're not friends with our neighbors or our coworkers, um, then, then I'm not sure fighting a public battle to get this overturned is in the, end, um, in the end the most effective witness to the gospel. And again, please hear me, there's huge disagreement on this. There, there are, uh, you know, there's the evangelical right, which is a term that, it's not my term, but uh, these folks are intent on joining usually with the Republican Party and fighting every battle as publicly as they can to get this overturned because they're convinced that allowing homosexual marriage will wreck all, you know, families, all families. I'm, you know, I respectfully say I'm, I don't entirely agree with that approach. I think the bigger threats to our country, quite frankly, are uh, the lack of affordable health care and the lack of affordable education. I I'm not sure how letting the United States as a secular body endorse marriage, you know, I don't think it's a good thing, but I'm not sure how it's going to wreck all families. But some Christians talk like this, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure I follow the logic. Um, at the same time, I, you know, I, I pray for and support people who are in the public square speaking for truth. But it, as I made the point earlier, it's, it's becoming increasingly difficult to speak to this issue vocally and with love and not be almost immediately shot down as being homophobic or full of hate or full of um, vitriol or whatever. So why not behind the scenes start befriending gay people and loving them? And I, I'm, I'm convinced Jesus would probably be more inclined to take that approach and take risks and hang out with tax collectors, so to speak, and be willing to be maybe judged by other members of the Christian community um, than by, than by gays at large. But that, that, that's a huge issue, and I don't pretend to have the answers for that. 
Um, I'm going to shut up now. I don't even know what time it is, or you all seem to be generally still awake. I think we have time. I think we have some time for questions. Uh, I don't, Randy, were you going to say anything, not to put you on the spot? Okay. Randy's going to tie this all up, and um, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, by all means, if you have, we have a few minutes, just a few minutes for questions. Uh, when someone says no more questions, we can stop, or maybe you don't have any questions. You've had enough of this. I, I'm sympathetic to that, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, go ahead. Of an extension of the evolutionary worldview, saying, you know, we are just, you know, randomly wandering through life and kind of the whole thing, you know, we have a right to do this because we decide we have that right. Um, we're self determining. Yeah. No, yeah. On their own terms, the two going from their own philosophy, if, you know, it's all about procreation and producing the next generation, doesn't it really fall into a disease because it's a terminal illness where you do not reproduce? Only Modern technology has enabled that. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a great that's a great question, a great point. I think it does tie in with the evolutionary perspective that well, um, it seems to be if we're going to propagate the species, right, we need heterosexual unions. But that's not to forestall or to say that we can't have this other other as well. But you will find biologists who will actually argue that there are some uh, some developments or species within. Uh, within the biological world that are occasionally that e exhibit naturally homosexual behavior so I'm I, I'm not I'm not in on those disputes but from a larger uh, philosophical perspective if you take evolution as the story of how we got to be here then we really and truly are on our own for determining what is right and wrong and and where we go if if this is all just time plus space plus chance plus random mutations um, then, then it's up for us to decide collectively what right and wrong is and what direction the human species ought to go. And that's exactly how this, uh, the transhumanists talk, they're, this new branch of philosophy. They're, they're, their starting point is evolution is a mess. I mean, you know, Darwin was right, but this is, we now know enough through genetic engineering, we, we're going to navigate the species into a new direction. Uh, in other words, we're, we're taking over biological evolution with cultural evolution, and we know the answers. I mean, we may not all know all of them, but with technology, we'll fix most of the problems that we create. It's very, um, it's sci-fi, but um, it, it's the, the, same, the same concept. Who, who gets to define what a normal sexual relationship is? Everything is up for grabs. I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but that's, that's where our culture is, is moving. And um, in some respects, it feels like this one's already over. Um, so the, the big question is, okay, well, what do we do as a church now? And I, I, and I think, you know, credit to Randy and the staff here, I think, I think it's the right approach. I love, I heart CU. I love CU. Um, salt and light. But we also need to know who we are, right? And so uh, identity, it, it all flows together. But I'm, I'm, much, for, I'm much more for uh, the church just being the church. That's a, that's a strand of ethics known as ecclesial ethics or church ethics. I don't follow all of what they teach, but, but their bottom line is, uh, Stan Hauerwas is one of their big thinkers, and he just says, the first task of the church is to let the world know that they're the world, which seems kind of odd, but it's in other words, it's to bear witness to a different, deeper social reality, and so that the world recognizes we're different from them. Um, but they're not, they're not big on cultural engagement, they're more on 
faithful witness as a church. Let's be a community where we welcome you know, unborn uh, babies, you know, unwed mothers, and we foster a culture of life because that bears witness to the world that killing babies is, is wrong. Anyway, I'm meandering. Um, uh, uh, yeah, go. Yes. Uh, I've read a book called Inner Spaciousness. It's uh-huh. a Christian approach. Um, actually, in Canada, they've been dealing with the gay-lesbian debate mm-hmm. for 10 years now. So it's not a new issue, but it's new for all of our culture in the U.S. Um, and that, I, that it was accredited. Like, that really opened my eyes to how to be more loving. And uh, mm-hmm. it really affects me personally because um, my aunt's <coughs> a committed mm-hmm. um, sexual mm-hmm. You know, so it, it really strikes for me because if I were to ever be, you know, dismissive of who they were, um, mm. I would totally turn my face apart, and I would never want to be that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think that really speaks to maybe a lot of you, you know, um, in your situations. But uh, a great book, just for a Christian perspective, is called Generous Spaciousness. Generous Spaciousness. Um, Thank you. Fantastic, because it really is from a woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't hear a lot of authors on that. The perspective, um, but she actually does ministry with uh, those type of people. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Like, you're talking about people being, the humanity being broken and fallen. Mm-hmm. How do you, I guess my question is, how do we deal with someone who, who is gay? And it's almost like saying, it's like they're almost kind of a special kind of brokenness and fallenness mm-hmm. due to the fact that they think. I didn't choose this. I can choose to steal. I can choose to mm-hmm. buy. I can choose to do those things. But I, I can't choose who I was. I just, they feel they never were able to choose that. Mm-hmm. They almost feel like it's a special kind of brokenness that separates them apart from, from other things. How do we kind Yeah, and th- thank you for asking that. Um, I, I, I do think, uh, I think that's a common sentiment. And I don't, I think, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not speaking of Windsor Road in particular, but I, the church at large does have a penchant. This is another thing that bothers me about the evangelical right is that they tend to uh, single out homosexuality as something that's just more deeply egregious than other sins. Um, I, I can only say from a theological, biblical perspective, that notion that we're born this way, thinking, well, you know what, I'm a sinner. I have a sin nature. I was born that way. Theologically, I'd say that's Adam and Eve's fault. But Romans 5, 12 through 11, like the classical passage where Paul talks about how they've screwed it up for the rest of us, we're all, we're all in the same boat. Um, you know, some, 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 uh, some kids struggle with anger, right? And it was because they grew up the first few years of their life in a just, a, just a, a shipwreck of a family home, and so that's just almost part of their DNA. I don't, I don't want to reduce it to biology, but they may spend the rest of their lives battling anger issues over, you know, they, they, they weren't given the choice over what family they were born in. So I'm sympathetic to what they're saying, but I would want to turn that around and say, you've just described the, the human condition, um, you know, except, except from we left out the part of attesting to the power of Christ in the gospel. So I don't, I don't want to excessively mute the notion that you can change or that you can't change. I don't, I don't fully buy that. But I also know that the bulk of the literature points to, uh, points to this, uh, this as something that happens over years and is extremely difficult. Um, that doesn't absolve us from the ability to to follow Christ or, or be changed. And so, so we're all, you know. 
I'm like, okay, yeah, join the club is what I would say. My, my particular issue may not be homosexuality, but I've got other junk. And you know what? Some of that's just because um, that's the way, you know, that's how fallen and messed up we are. But, but we attest to the power of Christ and we show grace and forgiveness and, and we model that. And so we encourage people to engage in a struggle and, and actually have victory in life and, and, and maybe actually get to a point where um, they, do, they do feel that they're, they're, that's no longer as big of an issue as it once was. But I think we're, we're, all, we're all in that, in, in that camp. You know, maybe I'll get to a place in my life where I'm less, you know, I'm less angry than I am now or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, pick your sin. Uh, uh, yes, and then and then in the back. But go ahead in the blue here. Yeah. I know some person like that. It's like a depression, a manic depression, yep. and they go into this lifestyle afterwards for this mm-hmm. family or anything. Do meds help? There is a clinical. There's a clinical dimension, and you know, I I can't speak with any authority there. But I'm not. You know, I'm not against psychiatry. Um, certainly. Uh, that is, you know, that the, the, there are valid um, pathological conditions that can manifest themselves in that way. Um, but I also know that being in that lifestyle can just lead to depression, and it may not may not have a clinical diagnosis. One of the most haunting stories I ever read uh, in in a book by Jeffrey Satinover, a physician, called "Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth." He uh, he encountered uh, he had a, he had a client who eventually died of AIDS. But this is probably 30 years ago. But, but this guy was just, you know, he, he was emotionally, he was a wreck. And so he would um, just always lonely, always isolated, but just immersed deeply in that lifestyle. And we're not talking about committed relationships. We're talking about the, the darker side where he would, he would go off and, you know, hit the gay bar scene and have, uh, you know, as many as 15 partners over the course of a weekend. And, and he said he kept... What, what finally sent him to psychiatrist is that he kept having this recurring dream where he's in this couple skate with his, his partner and they're, they're in the Olympics and they're skating. And he said, he said um, and in this, in this you know, beautifully choreographed move, um, you know, my partner has me by the skates and he's you know, swinging me around in the circle and, and my, my head is like an inch off of the ice. And he says, I, you know, so he's like spinning in this vortex. And he says, when I open my eyes, I don't see anyone there. And that's, you know, that's kind of a haunting image for, uh, that just stuck with me. But that, that can be real. Just this awful, um, th- this awful sense of depression and loneliness. Make, make no mistake, it is, it is a spiritual uh, condition. I don't want to over-spiritualize it. But there's, uh, we were all made for deeply fulfilling relationships with Christ. That in theory, you know, that would, um, that would, that would make all other relationships well-ordered. I mean, th- that's still the norm. But, for, but w- when we depart from that, um, you know, even, even through bad marriage choices or whatever, I mean, th- there is pain and suffering. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to sound hopeless because, right? W- one day we will see Christ face to face, First John three, and we will become like Him. And so, you know, that has to be the hope and the promise. You have to talk about that at some point. But as soon as you do that publicly, you've just said that there's something wrong with them, and then you've usually lost them. So that those con- those conversations need to take place, like I- I- within the context of a friendship. That, that, that you can, where you can take those kinds of risks. I mean, God bless people who say that publicly, but I think in the end it ends up doing more damage than good. Um, okay, uh, is it 
Bill? No. Joe, how did I get? I met you earlier. I'm sorry. Joe, go ahead. So that whatever you criticize them, it's almost impossible for them not to take it as hateful. <laughs> Why is that? Are they that sensitive? Yes. Yes. I mean, we're. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's uh, th that's been my experience, and I'm just you know I've uh, you know I uh, I shouldn't say I made the mistake, but I was when I was doing some research on YouTube, there, there's this famous incident of, uh, of Anita, I think it's Anita Bryant. Was she a country singer? She sang this song called Paper Roses. Anyway, she she's uh, she was part of the. Uh, you know, part of this gay rights push uh, movement happened uh, with the Stonewall Inn riots in 1969. Early 1970s, uh, Anita comes on the scene as a singer, and she works in the public square or in, in Florida to overturn laws that, um, that prohibited discrimination against same-sex couples for adopting kids. And so she worked tirelessly to overturn that. As an outspoken Christian, she goes and has a, a, a conference in Des Moines and famously, she gets a pie in the face from, from a gay activist, right? And it's all caught on, it's all on YouTube, right? And so, you know, and, and the pastor you know, was with there and they said, don't do anything to the guy, let him, you know, let him, let him leave. And, and so they, you know, they, on the spot, they prayed for him and whatever. But I just, I read through about two pages of responses and I was just absolutely horrified at um, the things that were said in favor of this man from Rolling Stone magazine, who threw a pie in her face. I mean, it was, it was, it was vulgar. It was profane, and it was just immensely hate, hateful. And I thought, wow, this is. And I'm thinking, okay, um, this this really is a sensitive issue. So, um, you may find folks that may not uh, react as 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 violently, um, but it's. It, I would just urge caution in this respect, and I'd say take a bigger risk and. Um, if you know of uh, you know a gay coworker or a neighbor, like uh, go have some lunch with them or have some coffee or something, and um, and you know let them let them come in touch with someone who's been embraced by the gospel. And over time, there may be there may be a way to change their perspective and even you know change their life. So we can talk more about that later. But I don't I don't think I've oversold that. Um, anyway, yes. Could you address some of the parts where it's um, with transgender and in the school, um, locker rooms? I, this one becomes so much bigger mm -hmm. when you have a student saying, I don't feel comfortable changing in this locker room, I want to change in that, and the response there, because it becomes so much more than the individual. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't, that's a huge, uh, it's going to become a huge issue. Um, I, I gave a, I, I did, I gave a paper on uh, transgendered surgery at a bioethics conference earlier this summer. It, it's, it's, some of the things, I, here's what I see happening, uh, and, and Randy alluded to this. It's like, well, we're, we're, we're up for discussion. There, there's a, an increasing divide between one's body and one's sense of identity, and, and that, that goes way back in philosophy, back to Descartes and others. Um, but but we're, we're now in this era where we privilege the inner, the inner sense of self over the outer, and it's, it, it's inevitably going to cause problems because um, 
like you just said, someone says, well, I identify, and, and they may very well. I don't, I'm not questioning the sincerity with which some people actually do feel like they've been born in the wrong body. I mean, there, I think there's a, there, there can be a clinical component there. I'm not sure what to do in the schools other than I can, the only way I can envision the government fixing this is eventually we've got transgendered locker rooms and bathrooms for everybody. Because I don't, I don't feel, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure what to do with someone who, because they identify one way, but their body is something else, I, I'm not, you know, I personally am not comfortable with them moving into the other restroom. And, and we, we should be cautious as parents. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the answer there is, uh, is there. It, it's enormously complex. Um, you know, theologically, I would say, and this probably isn't directly speaking to your issue, but I would say this is why the body like, matters for Christians. This is precisely why we are not just a bundle of thoughts and perceptions and feelings. This is not just why it's okay to talk about Christians as just having a soul trapped in a body. Is our body decaying? Yes, but it's still part of our core identity. But when you separate those out, you know, then it's, uh, then, then, um, issues of gender identity become major. And I, 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 that's where I see it going, is we're going to have to have separate bathrooms to accommodate every, everyone's need for rights and privacy. Um, it, it's a huge quagmire. And if you, I, I'll, if you want the paper I gave, I'll, I'll happily send it to you. I do address some of those things, but then I go off into surgery and other things that you probably don't care about. But um, do, do we have, are we done? We're time for... One more okay, yeah, go ahead. How do you think that uh, physiological intersex conditions complicate the demonic <laughs> sexuality and the ethics of all of this? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. Actually, I think this is more straightforward. Uh, the question was, how, do, how, does, how did the intersex condition relate to this? That is where someone's born with, say, uh, it's not ambiguous sexual organs, and so there's, it's not clear. And at some point, you may need to make a choice. Uh, in, in the, in the, what's that? Yes, yeah. Uh, th th there are other, um, in, in that case, yes, biology still matters. But if biology isn't clear, then I say you have, I, I suspect you need to fall back on one sense of identity there. I, that's, a, that's a very murky issue. But in, in, in cases like transgender cases where it's, it's, you don't have ambiguous genitalia, but you feel like you're in the wrong body, there I'd say theologically the body has more say over, over your sense of identity. And wh what needs to happen is working toward why you feel uncomfortable in your body. In the other, in your case, it's, or not in your case, but in general, I'm sorry, <laughs> not, I'm not pointing fingers, my goodness. Um, in, in that situation, it, because, because there can be amb ambiguity biologically, then I think, what else do you do but fall back on one sense of identity? And this is just part of being in a fallen world again. I don't, I don't know if that's a good answer. There's probably a better one out there, but, but these kinds of issues are increasingly the topic of bioethical discussions, and thank you for your patience. Wow. And um, <laughs> no, thank you.